I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. When Matt Wilsey's daughter, Grace, was diagnosed with the ultra-rare disease NGLI-1 deficiency, he traveled the world to get a diverse group of researchers to work on finding answers. His approach to driving research, he says, comes from his experience as a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. We spoke to Wilsey about the experience of getting a diagnosis for his daughter, what he learned from others who had gone before him, and the importance of open collaboration across institutions. Matt, thanks for joining us. Danny, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Like many people in the rare disease community, your involvement began with the birth of your daughter, Grace. She was eventually diagnosed with NGLI-1 deficiency and ultra-rare genetic disease. Perhaps you can begin with NGLI-1 itself, what's known about it, how does the disease manifest itself, and what, if anything, is done to treat someone with it? Well, that's, uh, that's a great way to start. And, um, well, I guess I'll, I'll first um, kick off by saying that it's a complex and, and devastating neuromuscular disease that affects about uh, 35 patients globally. And we think the numbers are, are much higher than that, but this is not a disease that's going to affect tens of thousands of people. If we're fortunate, probably maybe you know, 500 to 1,000. And, and the disease manifests itself in, in a variety of ways, but primarily in the brain liver, and muscle. And what the NGLI1 gene does, it's a fundamental gene that's it's really critical for all life. It's almost found in every uh, organism, but it produces an enzyme that cuts off a sugar tree, a glycan tree, from a misfolded protein or set of proteins. And this kind of goes to the second half of your question, which is, what do we know about it? And we know some, some things about it, but there's still so much that we don't know. We don't know, is it one protein? Is it multiple proteins? Um, which is a very key question that we, we have to answer. Um, and, and this enzyme is a key piece of the recycling process that each of our cells goes through, you know, millions of times. Um, and, and the families are treating it in a variety of ways, mostly with supplements that you can get right over the counter or order through Amazon. Um, some of those are uh, N-acetylcysteine or, or NAC, which uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with, uh, epicatechin, which is found in apple skins, dark chocolate, and tea leaves, um, which is shown to boost uh, mitochondrial performance, um, and, and then last, uh, a variety of sugars that also helps to, to uh, streamline the, the missing enzyme in some way that we don't fully understand. And some of these kids also have uh, seizures or seizure-like activity. And they're treated with a drug called uh, Keppra. Uh, Grace isn't currently taking that drug, but it has worked wonders um, in some of the other kids. And what's pretty remarkable is that Keppra is typically toxic to the liver, especially people that have existing liver disease like these kids have. And what's amazing is when we give Keppra, the liver doesn't start deteriorating faster. In fact, it stabilizes, kind of improves, and then the seizures are also controlled. So it just goes to show you that, you know, basic understanding and basic fundamental research is so critical. We know really little about uh, these rare conditions, and, and it's important that we invest in them. Well, how soon after her birth did you know something was wrong, and what did 
it would ultimately take to get a diagnosis? Yeah, it was a long process. It was a multi-year process, and we felt very fortunate. Um, we actually knew something was wrong in utero. Uh, we were living in New York at the time, and uh, my wife, Kristen, kept failing all of the non-stress tests. And we did um, a series of blood labs, and those came back, um, gave us a higher probability of you know one of the trisomies or, or Down syndrome. And so we did an amnio, and that came back normal. Of course, uh, NGLI-1 had never been discovered at the time, and so doctors really weren't sure what to look for. And they just sort of said, well, let's just keep an eye on it. And um, a few days before Grace was uh, due to be delivered, um, the doctors uh, hit the, the panic button and, and did an emergency crash C-section for um, decreasing fetal heart rate. And Kristen uh, was allowed to go to recovery, and I followed Grace uh, to the Wellbeauty Nursery. And I knew right there and then that my life had changed really forever. I, I, I looked at the other families, the healthy families, the typical families that were around me, and I felt uh, pretty deflated and dejected. I kept calling the hospitalist over to take a look at Grace, and he said she was fine. And I don't know if it was just sort of paternal instinct or, or, or what. I have no medical training or background, but I just knew something was wrong. And uh, for the next 24 to 36 hours, she was in our room. And uh, she was like a wet noodle, the best way to describe her. She wasn't latching on. Her eyes looked very glazed and, and hollow and uh, wasn't going to the bathroom. And our pediatrician ran a bunch of tests. And um, the C-reactive protein, the CRP, which is probably many of your listeners know, is a nonspecific marker for, for inflammation. And she was sent to the NICU with a suspected infection. And they hit her with antibiotics for a little over two weeks, antivirals for a couple of days, and she improved every one to two days. And at the end of our NICU stay, her liver function tests, which basically shows how's the liver performing, elevated. And it basically said the liver's under stress. And uh, the team at this point, we were at Stanford out in California, and they said, look, there's nothing more we can do for you in the NICU. You should just go home and, and monitor it as an outpatient, which we did. And we went back and um, at month five or six of age and, and everything had normalized. We did a liver ultrasound, liver looked good, blood looked good. But then all of a sudden the, the labs jumped back up. It was um, very unusual. And that's really when Pandora's box was open. They said, this is not a liver issue. This is not an overreaction to an infection or an infection itself. This is something that's genetic. And that's, uh, that's really when Pandora's box was open. And, and we mobilized the troops and just started asking people, who's the very best at biochemical genetics in the country? And we started to get the same names over and over again. Um, Gerald Avivo at Columbia, Marnie Falk at CHOP, Greg Enns at Stanford, Bill Cragen um, at Texas Children's. And we started to see these people. And we just started throwing darts at the board. We did a liver biopsy. We did everything under the sun. And they, we struck out on all of them. And so I said to uh, our doctors, I said, I want to do whole genome sequencing. And at the time, people weren't even doing whole exome. But I said, I want to do genome from the standpoint that I want all the data and I want it now. Even if we can't interpret it for many years to come, let's at least get it and have it and, and then we can refine it over time. And so we had two different teams um, do whole genome. We had Mike Snyder and his team at Stanford do it and uh, Richard Gibbs and Huda Zogby at Baylor also do it. And they both came up with the same leading candidate, a nuclear gene called SUPV3L1. And we did six months of functional analysis on this gene. 
And they came back, uh, actually, Vamsi Musa at Harvard came back and he said, this is not the answer. And so we went back, we flew to Baylor and we said, can you please rerun, reanalyze Grace's whole genome data? And they did. And uh, the young postdoc who worked on it, uh, Matthew Bainbridge, looked, he basically swept everything away that we had previously thought. And he's like, let me just look for everything that we haven't considered. Well, sure enough, one of the genes that Stanford had flagged about a year and a half earlier was an, a gene called NGLY1, NGLY1. And Matthew was pretty confident. He was about 99% confident that he had found it. And uh, then he found a paper from Duke um, by uh, Dr. Mead and uh, Dr. Goldstein that outlined a, another boy who had been discovered, and that, that boy was Bertrand Might. And so Matthew's confidence went from 99.9 to 99.99, and, uh, and then we were off to the races. We, we uh, confirmed it um, through uh, biochemical analysis that uh, Grace wasn't producing the enzyme, and so we finally had a diagnosis after years and years of searching. You've talked about the feeling of social isolation and the effect the experience had on your friendships. What is that experience like, and how, how did you deal with it? Yeah, it's a great question. I think this is a, a common feeling for a lot of rare disease advocates. It's, it's really hard to pin down or explain, um, but I believe that, that people are uncomfortable seeing sick kids. I think I was probably one of those people before I had one. You know, none of us want to live in a world where diseases like NGLY1 or SMA or cancer strike any of us, but especially those that are so young and innocent. And, you know, they don't get a, a typical shot at life. And, and people don't want that, don't, don't want to think about that happening to themselves or their kids or someone they love. And so in a way, it's almost kind of like a, a leper syndrome. And um, they just don't want to see it or touch it. But while many people do disappear, a large number of people also step up in the most unexpected ways. And it's really a fascinating example, I think, of psychology in both directions. And the experience is really a grief process, but there's nothing, you know, like the loss of a child or a loss of a spouse or a, a parent or a grandparent, you know, so time heals those wounds um, with, with a constantly, a chronically sick child. The grief process is almost never ending. It's a never ending cycle. It's like Groundhog Day. And so what I really take faith in is you, you basically have to take faith in something. So for, for us, it's, it's faith in our religion. Uh, it's faith in our family and our closest friends. And we double down really on each of these buckets and then we cut everything else out. Just is not important. And um, so that's what I recommend also to other rare disease advocates that are coming after us. Well, when you finally did get a diagnosis, you were actually able to connect with a family that had a child with NGLY1. What was that like? Yeah, it was, it was wonderful. And the, the first family that we did connect with was, was the Mite family in Utah. And it really takes um, you off your island. I think it was both. It was true for for both families. We both had gone. We we'd mirrored each other, and had had connected. And um, it it really allows you to find someone that understands what you're experiencing. And even your family, you know, your parents, your siblings, aunts and uncles, they can't really appreciate what you're going through. And other rare families, especially those who know your disease can really relate with the daily struggles. And they can also offer ideas on, on supplements or therapy tools or sleeping aids. And I now talk with multiple NGLY1 families uh, every week now, and we share ideas. I give them into, insight into the, um, the research that the Grace Wilsey Foundation is funding. And then with parents of older kids, 
I learned how the disease progresses. For example, some of the, the much older and glide one patients were having um, bone density issues, which is incredibly valuable, not only for us in terms of prevention with GRACE, but also to the researchers that we can then pass that along. And then most importantly, we give each other uh, pep talks because there's, there's bad days really for all of us. And, uh, and so we all kind of lean on each other um, in various ways um, day to day. Well, after you had the diagnosis, you started the Grace Wilsey Foundation. What were you hoping to accomplish? <laughs> I think we kind of jumped into the deep end. You know, we didn't really know how hard it was to start a foundation or run it on a continuous uh, basis in terms of reporting. Uh, I think we were a little bit naive, but the thinking um, really at its more at its purest form was how do Kristen and I utilize the people that know and love Grace? How do we how do we use them, utilize them to cure Engli one and related rare diseases? And so many people kept asking us, how can we help? They basically kept they, and they were hounding us, how can we help? And there weren't really any tangible ways that we could say, we need your help on X, Y, and Z until until we started the Grace Wilsey Foundation and, and the IRS approved our 501c3. Um, but beyond that, uh, Chris and I really wanted to demonstrate to the world that diseases like Engli-1 are linked to more common diseases, and they shouldn't be ignored. And this is where one of our key tagline, taglines comes from, which is, rare is not an excuse. And essentially, rare is easy to be ignored because of the patient numbers, but it needs to be studied for the greater good. And third, uh, we wanted to give other rare communities a roadmap to copy. You know, people might not be able to put as many lines in the water, but that's okay. You know, put one line in the water, and that would be exponentially more research on, you know, take your pick, disease X, um, than it had than had previously been done. And then finally, then the jury is still out on this last point, but we wanted to demonstrate that a rare condition could be treated in a cost-effective manner. And our hope is that we can cure Engli-1 for something in the range of 20 to $30 million. And, you know, I think that's doable. Well, as you mentioned, you you don't have a medical background. Your background is actually as a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. You've started three companies. How did you apply a Silicon Valley approach to finding treatments for Engli-1? Yeah, and, you know, I, people will say Silicon Valley you know, uh, we're in such a bubble here, right? And it's hard for people to understand. There's TV shows about it or books that people see or the, you know, the social network movies like that. But, you know, Silicon Valley is a really unique place <clears throat> and people are encouraged to move fast and to disrupt the status quo. And just because something has always been done a certain way doesn't mean it's the best way. You know, that's, that's, that's an opportunity to change something. And, and if you do try and change it and you fail, that's okay. It's not a negative here. And similarly, in the in the medical world, experiments are going to fail all over the place. We just want people to fail fast, and that's what we encourage them to do. Fail fast, share those failures with um, the scientific community, and move forward. And in addition, organizations in Silicon Valley are very flat, and they do that to avoid bureaucracy and politics. And so that's also what we're trying to um, instill in, in the team members that we've funded, and then also to uh, provide objectives and milestones. This is paramount, you know, and, and some scientists are reluctant to accept those terms, but that's okay. We just want to kind of, what's our horizon? You know, you know, when Columbus was sailing to the, you know, to find a new path to, to the, um, you know, to India, he wasn't thinking, well, let me discover the new world, but he at least had an idea where he was going to go and you tack accordingly, uh, depending on where the science takes you. 
Um, and then I think the other thing here in Silicon Valley is that A plus talent really gravitates to A plus talent. It's kind of self-fulfilling. And ultimately, they want to do something truly great, something that's more important than themselves. And they'll trade uh, money for passion. And the same is true for the NY1 team. This isn't, it isn't about papers or tenure or money. This is really about curing sick kids. And not many scientists get a shot on goal like this. And they don't get to work across specialties like this. Um, and it's really helped us attract a, a, an amazingly talented group of scientists all over the world. You've also acknowledged that you, you've learned a lot from people who have gone before you, like Brad Margus and, and John Crowley. What did you learn from these folks? Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Brad and John, and, and they're just two of, two of the examples. Um, we're constantly learning and adapting. We also borrow heavily uh, from Chris and Hugh Hempel or uh, Alex Silver, or Victoria and Bill Strong, Mark Dan, Monica at the Rett Syndrome Research Trust. These are all pioneers and even people in our own world like uh, Christina and Matt might. And they've all taught us um, so much, both technical. Um, for example, Monica at um, Rett Syndrome Research Trust had, had really urged us very early, two years ago, to set up cells at, at Coriel to make it easier for researchers to get cell lines. And, and her, uh, her advice was um, so important because now we're running into this issue two years later. Um, and, and these people also offer intangible and, and really philosophical ideas. Um, and I think probably one of the most universal one is that, uh, we're all going to hit roadblocks. Every single rare disease advocate's going to want to throw in the towel at some point. Um, politics will rear its head. Noise will come up. It's inevitable. And what these people have all taught us is that, if you keep Grace and the other NGLI1 patients as the North Star, if every decision that we make goes through that lens, the rest will take care of itself. And so we can ignore the politics and the noise and focus on getting these kids a cure. And so there, you know, there are cheerleaders, really. And uh, we, we borrow a lot from them, and we hope that others borrow a lot from us as, as their kids are also um, diagnosed. Well, when, when you launched the, the foundation, you mentioned you did this in a way that you may not have been prepared for. Right. One of the things at the time, you had no relationships with NIH, with researchers or drug makers. How did you go about building those relationships? It was a lot of cold calls and a lot of cold emails. And uh, thankfully, I had a lot of experience creating and nurturing relationships in my previous roles in government and technology and uh, also in private equity. And this is not a fast process. There's no easy solution. It takes a lot of elbow grease and a lot of uh, Googling, a lot of uh, maybe doors closing in your face. It's taken us about uh, six years to build the team. We actually have this really cool brain map that we show when we give talks that basically illustrates how the team was built brick by brick. And it started with nothing. And we would ask uh, one person that we might meet at a conference or someone that was introduced to us by a friend um, and that person would introduce us to three people, and those three people to five people, and those five people to ten. And slowly this sort of web uh, was created of some of the best medical uh, scientific minds in the world. And I even remember early on, one of our key advisors is, uh, is Huda Zogby down at Baylor, and I think she's one of the best scientists in the, in the entire world. And we said to her, Huda, we're starting flat-footed. Where should we start? And she said, well, I think you should, you should do a Drosophila model, a fruit fly model, because it's cheap, it's effective, and it will give you some quick ideas about the mechanism that's at work here. And then we started asking people, okay, great, we'll, we'll establish that beachhead. Who's the very best scientist that we should go recruit? 
and you start hearing the same names over and over again. You reach out to uh, that scientist and ask him or her to give a, a business plan. We evaluated it and started funding it, and we just started doing this in you know, about 15 different areas. We're actually now up to 19 teams that we're sponsoring all in, in a, um, a unique field of science. One of the things you've talked about is the importance of open collaboration across institutions. Can you explain why that matters, particularly for a disease like NGLI-1 deficiency, and, and what are the barriers to to implementing that? All right. Yeah, and I probably will ruffle some feathers on, on this, but, you know, traditional research in science and medicine is guarded. And, and typically, historically, why that's happened is, is so that researchers could protect their chances of landing a grant or, or publishing an interesting paper in nature or science or, or even getting tenure. And, and what we're trying to solve is an incredibly difficult problem. And no one person knows everything. In fact, you take a, the, the, the biggest expert of NGLI-1, who's uh, Dr. Tadashi Suzuki, who's from Japan. He discovered the enzyme 20 plus years ago. He knows very little bit about it. So we need to leverage our diversity and learn from each other. So it's almost like a Manhattan project. We want the very best at metals, the very best at trajectory, the very best at explosives. I mean, we, we want that same type of concept within science and medicine to hear these kids. And we're in a race against time. We can't afford to have data or results sit in silos. You know, every day is precious for these kids. It's a day we're never going to get back. So everything needs to be shared. For example, um, Dr. Shinya Yamanaka, who who won the Nobel Prize for inventing you know, stem cells without an embryo, you know, he can do it from blood or from skin. Um, the IPSCs. Has, yeah, the IPSCs, exactly. So he's openly shared his lines with other Anglide 1 researchers like um, Hudson Freeze down at uh, Sanford Burnham. Um, uh, Dr. Lars Steinmetz at Embel in, in Heidelberg, Germany, has shared his transcriptome analysis. Uh, Dr. Suzuki, who I mentioned earlier, has shared his mice cells. So these scientists are basically saying, look, I'm sacrificing my ability to publish and um, to, do, to, to escalate my career for the greater good of these kids. And it's really the only way that disease will be solved. And it's, it's a prerequisite for receiving funding from our foundation, which automatically eliminates some scientists from, from the discussion. But that's okay. You know, it's, um, it's we're, again, we're trying to change the status quo, and we want people, scientists that are like-minded uh, along with us. And so far, we've been very fortunate to, to, to satisfy those requirements. You know, I want to turn back to a, a point you touched on earlier. What's the case to be made for the value of understanding an ultra-rare disease like NGLI-1 deficiency as a way to understand more common diseases? Yeah, this I, I, I'm very passionate about this, and it's one of those things where it kind of feels like it's just right on the edge of our fingertips. We've started to see some connections between NGLI-1 and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's um, and in cancer. This is coming up in some of the research that the Grace Wilsey Foundation is sponsoring. And there's also some evidence that being a carrier of NGLI-1 increases one's chances of developing an autoimmune condition like type 1 diabetes. And why is that the case? We don't know. Um, and we're trying to figure that out because obviously it would be a lot easier for us to go fundraise if we could say, hey, this is more important than 35 kids that you've never met before. Um, and it's still early. But I do believe unlocking NGLI-1 could help millions of people. And, and outside of our sort of very small NGLI-1 world, you know, science, another example is that neiman Pixi patients, um, like the Hempel's uh, two girls, are immune to Ebola. And there's some ideas why that's the case, but 
how can we turn on and off that light switch so that Ebola doesn't become another epidemic scare like it did last year? And these are just critical questions. You know, if you're hitting, if you're just trying to break through the brick wall straight on, you're not going to have a lot of success. If you come at it from the side, I think it's going to be pretty valuable what we unlocked uh, for, for science and medicine. I understand you've adopted Remy, the character from the Pixar film Ratatouille, as a mascot. Why? Why is that? Yeah, I love I love Remy. He speaks to me in so many ways, and I am a bit of a, a big Disney fan, which is probably why I picked him. But um, I find the metaphor for a story so powerful. Uh, you know, he's essentially a nobody. You know, it's a rat that lives under the in the sewer in Paris that be, goes on to become a, basically the best chef in the world, and and uh, certainly in Paris. And that bootstrap mentality really resonates with me as a tech entrepreneur from Silicon Valley. Failure and being dismissed is a badge of honor here. And the same is true with Remy. It formed his, his determination, his perseverance. And the external metaphor is equally powerful. It's so uh, easy for all of us to, to judge this little runt. I mean, how in the world could he become so talented? And, um, you know, he goes out and proves everyone wrong. And we hope to do the same thing with NGY1. People tell us all the time, there's no chance that you can treat NGY1. And I say cure, which also ruffles feathers in science. You know, there's not a lot of cures out there, actually. There's very few. We treat things. Um, and so people are like, you know, there's no chance you're going to cure NGY1, and there's probably no chance you're going to treat NGY1. And, and that just provides fuel for us. And the Grace Wilsey Foundation scientists have all adopted Remy. They all have fridge magnets or posters of Remy up in their lab or their office. And he reminds them to be open to the unexpected, uh, to, to be open to serendipity. And, and I can give a real example of, of Remy at work in the NGY1 world. A couple years ago, we started to pursue uh, gene therapy. And the person who urged us to do this was Emil um, Kakis at Ultragenics. And he connected us with the best folks in the country, folks like uh, Mark Kay and Richard Snyder and Gordon Watson and Barry Byrne. And I circled up with our existing NGY1 team at the time, and I said, hey, would you guys please have a call on gene therapy? We know it's early, just you know, have a, a discussion. And there were a few kind of critiques that came back. You know, this is too early. Gene therapy will never work. It's, you know, it's been promised for 20 years now. Uh, um, and I just, I urged them, I said, just have the call and see where it goes. And I removed myself from the discussion and let the scientists just talk to themselves. The call lasted several hours, much longer uh, than expected or scheduled. And each attendee came back and said that call was incredibly valuable. And that's Remy at work. You know, the best ideas and insight often come from the least expected places. And so we could all essentially use uh, Remy in, in our lives. And um, so that's why he's our mascot. Matt Wilsey, president and founder of the Grace Wilsey Foundation. Matt, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Danny. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to learn more about Matt Wilsey and Meetum, join Global Genes for the fourth annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit, September 24th and 25th in Huntington Beach, California. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org 2015 Summit. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. 
You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. <laughs>